the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day, with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Matea Roach, erstwhile Haligonian, current Trontonian, bearer of a degree in sexual diversity studies and holder of the fifth longest Jeopardy streak of all time. Hello. Hi, longtime listener, first time caller. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Thanks for being on. Uh, today on the show, we are discussing two subjects that are not especially conducive to the sort of sardonic things off the top one might normally say. Um, the developments in the States uh, about reproductive rights and how that might affect Canada or in particular the sort of reflection that's prompted already. And the what is kind of or ostensibly and is sort of the partway repealing of the ban on gay men giving blood in Canada. Thanks for coming on Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Thank you again for having me. I'm really excited to get into it. I'm not host Jesse Brown. He is off somewhere other than here, perhaps hanging out with James Holzauer talking about game theory or some such. I'm Candleland News Editor Jonathan Goldsby. And this episode is brought to you by Bob Kelly, Ryan Bird, Kayla Snyder, Martin Scherer, Michael Roman, Kevin Royal, Mark Brooker, and Trish. Hi, this is Trish from McTeer, Muskoka. I listen to Canada Land not for Jesse, but for his co-hosts and guest hosts who bring a wealth of info and news that I'm not getting anywhere else. Thunder Bay, Wag the Dug, it's all must-listen reporting. Thanks again. Abortion is violent! Abortion is violent! Demonstrate.
celebrations sprang up almost instantly in Washington and elsewhere as people either celebrated or protested word the court could strike down Roe v. Wade. The leaked Supreme Court draft ruling and the reaction. That our deepest fears are coming true. The unborn are human and we've been killing them in mass. This is going to fall hardest on the most vulnerable women in our country. This is what the Republicans have been working toward this day for decades. And those who provide access to abortion in Canada are preparing to answer questions about what happens if an American comes north seeking one. It's hard to describe something that is in some ways one of the most stunning and consequential scoops in the modern history of American media and also chillingly maybe not inevitable, but foreseeable, with the last few decades of American politics having been directly oriented to lead to it. Like they put in the very last piece of a 10,000-piece puzzle, and we all took a step back from it and were horrified to see that the picture it formed was, in fact, the same one as on the box. So political draft opinion of the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which would overturn Roe v. Wade, gutting abortion protections at the federal level, leaving it up to individual states to regulate. The decision isn't final and wouldn't come into effect until it's published by the court, which is probably going to happen late next month, but now could maybe be sooner. But it does suggest that as of the time it was written in February, a majority of the court was on board. I guess it's a big question, but Matea, what were your first impressions when you heard about that? I think I had a similar reaction to what you were describing, that it felt as though this is the culmination of what you know, especially evangelical conservatives in the states have been working towards for such a long time. When we saw the three Supreme Court justices be appointed during the Trump presidency, one of the major issues that we saw discussed during those nomination hearings was, you know, what would your stance on Roe v. Wade be? A lot of senators, uh, I guess I shouldn't say a lot of senators, but the senators, uh, you know, that were more moderate among the Republican caucus that were on the fence stated on record that they believed that, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Coney Barrett would not act to strike down Roe v. Wade. Obviously, they either didn't believe that when they said it or they've been bamboozled. Um, It seems more likely that they just straight up didn't believe it when they said it. So I'm looking at this decision, you know, as you said, it's not final, but it seems as though since it's been leaked, it's relatively unlikely to change between now and when the actual decision gets handed down, I believe, in June or July. So I would say horror and dread is kind of what my first response was and what I'm still feeling about it now. When it does come down, the immediate effect would be that uh, abortion be banned or severely restricted in at least 20 states because uh, some have over time passed laws designed to come into effect right away should such a day ever arrive. Others have bans that were basically voided by Roe but never actually were taken off the books. Still others have laws that were blocked by court injunctions that would probably no longer hold up. So I mean the question, you know, why are we talking about this on Canada land, the three quarters of whose names suggest the story is beyond our jurisdiction? Well, my initial instinct had been to sort of critique the coverage here and its implicit smug superiority, pointing out that we're not nearly as backwards as those south of the border. But what I've seen it actually hasn't been the tone at all. I mean, I know I have ideas about what I've seen in the coverage. What have you noticing about the coverage in Canada? So I was also pleased that there wasn't as much smug superiority as I think we might have seen uh, if a decision like this had been handed down uh, or leaked, you know, say five years Mm -hmm. ago. I think that especially with 
you know, past discussions that have happened, I would say, over the past couple of conservative leadership elections specifically, where we've seen candidates, you know, not actually explicitly committing to trying to roll back uh, abortion access in Canada, but definitely candidates, uh, you know, winking and nodding at the social conservative wing of the party. I think that Canadians who are more liberal, that are more pro-choice, are not as willing to be uh, flip about what's going on in the States, which I think is good because it's really not something to be taken lightly. Like, you know, women will likely die as a result of uh, this decision being handed down. So I don't think that we should be looking down our noses at Americans. It's like a tragedy what's going on down there. So I would say the coverage has been relatively balanced. I I think there was an article in the Toronto Star, and I've seen a number of Twitter threads as well that have been spotlighting the fact that although we do have obviously not a ban on abortion, there's no reference to abortion in our criminal law, uh, we don't exactly have a protected right to abortion in Canada either. And access to abortion is something that varies a lot based on what province you live in, uh, based on whether you're in a rural area or an urban area. And, you know, access, I think, just to services in general, like, are are very much mediated by, you know, race, by class, things like that. So I've been pleased pleased to see that some coverage has been highlighting the fact that up until like 2017, for instance, uh, there was actually no ability to access abortion at a clinic on Prince Edward Island. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that as a yeah. maritimer, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see people paying attention to issues in the maritimes ever at all, especially when it's something, uh, you know, so critical to women's rights. I remember roughly following that story over the past decade or so. I think it first came into the news in 2011, or it came into the national news in 2011-ish that like, there's no availability to get an abortion on Prince Edward Island and it took several years to and quite a lot of activism and action to resolve that. Yeah, women had to travel hours to get to Nova Scotia for, to, to obtain the services. Yeah, there was the book about it. Kate McKenna, the CBC reporter in Montreal, wrote the book. Uh, she was an activist in 2011 or so until she went to become a journalist. But you know, she wrote a book called No Choice, Third Year Fight for Abortion, Prince Edward Island. Uh, until 2014, like the PEI government was still trying to claim that the reason abortion wasn't offered in the province was it simply like a kind of specialized medical service that it didn't make sense to simply have on hand for a population of 140,000. And it was only when activists tried setting up their own biweekly clinic and found their efforts blocked did it become fully apparent that was a political choice, that they, the government basically finally admitted it. But in one of the interviews she gave to JSOR, she did observe that, like, what you were saying about Atlantic Canada, I guess, receiving less attention from the rest of the country, she pointed out that, yeah, there's no, there's almost never any national coverage of Prince Edward Island in particular, and that people, like, a reporter typically has to be dispatched from Halifax. Does it feel like the rest of the country kind of ignores some of the some stuff there in that, and that sort of allows things to, to maybe go on that wouldn't be tolerated for as long and... Ontario or Quebec? Yeah, I would say it absolutely feels that way. And I I will say that I haven't lived in the Atlantic provinces for a number of years. Like, I've been in Toronto for six and a half years, but obviously most of my family still lives in Nova Scotia, and I try to pay attention as much as I can to the news out there. And I think... It's remarkable. Um, I've had friends that have either visited the East Coast or that have moved there for the first time, uh, particularly during the pandemic. I think there's been uh, a bit of an exodus of young people from southern Ontario to the East Coast. And the things that people are surprised about when they move out there uh, really shock me because there's certain things that to me are just like second nature, common knowledge. Everybody knows it. So Candleland, for instance, I know a number of years ago did some really good reporting on the Irvings and just the Mm. massive influence that they have in New Brunswick. That's something that unless you're really paying attention to the news, I think you could easily miss it. And I've had friends that have moved out there and are shocked at just the number of businesses that, you yeah. know, that like you, they engage with all the time that are owned by the Irving family. So like things like that, I think it really becomes apparent when you're somebody who's from the East Coast, who's interacting with people in Central Canada or Western Canada a lot, like there's just not a, a depth of knowledge of issues that are affecting people in the Maritimes. And I guess we'll count Newfoundland in Atlantic Canada generally. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, one of the things about this development in the states is that it's resurfaced a lot of the questions, certainly around the inequitable or unequal access to abortion services throughout Canada, certainly the divide between urban and rural, but also, yeah, the PI gap and the situation in New Brunswick. I mean, maybe it's different now, but at least until recently. I should, yeah, you couldn't, you still couldn't get a government-funded abortion in the capital, Fredericton, um, the only handful of hospitals in the province that provide it, none of which are there. If you actually pull up, like, the regulation under the province's Medical Services Payment Act, like, how the, they view abortion is really, really stark. It specifically says... The following are deemed not to be entitled services under the you know, provincial health insurance. A, elective plastic surgery or other services for cosmetic purposes. A.01, correction of inverted nipple. A.02, breast augmentation. A.03, autoplasty for persons over the age of 18. That's like a ear surgery. Uh, A.04, removal of minor skin lesions, except for they're expected to be cancerous. And A.01, abortion, unless the abortion is performed in a hospital facility approved by the jurisdiction in which the hospital facility is located. It is kind of wild that that's just sitting there on the books explicitly drawing a parallel between abortion and various types of elective plastic surgery. So I ha- was not familiar with that piece of legislation, but I was, uh, you know, reading up and reviewing the R.V. Morgenthaler decisions, like the ones oh, yeah. that struck down <laughs> the criminal code provisions against abortion. So the first one, I suppose I should say, uh, R.V. Morgenthaler in 1988 was the one that struck down the criminal code provisions mm-hmm. uh, and that removed the use of therapeutic abortion committees, uh, you know, where women had to go and basically go to a committee of three typically male doctors in order to, you know, have their abortion deemed acceptable mm-hmm. or unacceptable. People don't realize the burden that this places on people that are seeking abortions. Um, to have to take the time off work to travel, to go to a hospital, to you know have to deal with doctors who are basically assessing, like even though it's not as stringent as with the therapeutic abortion clinics pre the first Morgenthaler decision, the fact that you were subjected to so much additional scrutiny while seeking an abortion, I think can be deeply traumatizing to people that are looking for that kind of care. Yeah, I mean, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, I believe, is pursuing a case in, in New Brunswick. And the PI situation was also resolved through legal action. They didn't end up actually having to go to court. Amazingly, they just served the action and the government backed down immediately, which, you know, I guess never happens. But the fact that that seems to be the only thing that's caused them to back down. I mean, when you, you know, when abortion, subject of abortion access is brought up in Canada, certainly when it's brought up at the federal level, it usually comes back to rhetoric around do conservatives have a hidden agenda. I mean, it is something that the liberals like to hammer the conservatives with. And it's often tricky to sort of parse whether that is is really good, that that is something that they're very much on guard for and being very critical of versus is it tossed around so lightly such that when there are actual politicians or other forces working to try to thwart access to abortion, it's not maybe taken seriously. I mean, just like National Post calling this for a while, but like, you know, even just yesterday in the Toronto Sun, you know, Warren Kinsella, overturning Roe v. Wade will have big Canadian political consequences. He ends with like an abortion kills Tory political careers. An abortion kills Tory political careers. And Brian Lilly, American abortion fight soon to become an issue for Trudeau, which I mean, both things are basically accurate. I can't decide how I feel about the fact that when this does come up, the way that the liberals tend to deploy it, whether that is ultimately a positive thing or or not. I would say it's like great for the liberals strategically, I would say, mm-hmm. to be able to 
import these American debates about access to abortion and then act as though the conversation that's happening in the U.S. is somehow descriptive of the situation on the ground in Canada. Because if they get to be the party that is in favor of just access to abortion at all, as opposed to having to specify, you know, ways in which they might increase access or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in situations where women are perhaps having to pay, and I shouldn't say women, like obviously I mean women, trans and non-binary people as well. But, you know, in situations where people are in some way having to pay out of pocket to access abortion care, like making sure that that's not happening because it's essential. It's like an essential service. Like people should not be having to pay for it. What I find bizarre is the conversation around the way that this is being deployed by social conservatives, because I think that the coverage in The Post and The Sun uh, that I saw kind of seems to imply that this is somehow something that conservatives are just going to have to like eat crow on or whatever. Like, I don't know. I don't really see a path to victory for the federal conservatives where they actually take that position, right? I think even if you look at the membership within the Conservative Party, obviously there is a substantial population of social conservatives and candidates in leadership elections will often cater to them. But I also think that somebody like, you know, Aaron O'Toole in the past leadership or somebody like Pierre Poilievre or or Jean Charest, like these candidates also know that if they're going to win an election federally, they can't veer too hard to that social Mm -hmm. conservative side because they're not going to be able to attract the support of people that might be red Tories, that might be Mm flip-floppy between the liberals and the conservatives. No one's trying to put the liberals on the back foot of actually having to defend wider access, which I think would be a much more difficult position for them to take. I don't think that it's to the benefit of anybody to just import these American debates and pretend like the situation here is exactly the same. I think it glosses over a lot of the nuances that are specific to the situation in Canada. I guess maybe to maybe unwisely once again draw a quick parallel to the states, it's just, the, yeah, the question of like, I think one of the things that struck me the most is sort of the long game. The Republicans, that social conservatives there played, a majority of the population, a solid majority, supports substantial access to, or at least some access to abortion. And yet they managed to, over time, over the course of decades, sort of overcome the fact that there is popular support for that by just coalescing and congealing this this base that fervently believes that there ought, that there ought not to be. There are probably fewer evangelicals in Canada as a portion of the overall population, and they're not they're not as many areas in which they're concentrated enough to be a substantial voting block. What would have to happen? Or is a long game even a viable thing in Canada? It may be naive of me to say this. I don't think that we could see it happen here in the same way. And I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. I don't think that the reason why I don't see it happening has to do with social conservatives in Canada not being determined enough or even that they're not present in large enough numbers. But I think um, a couple of things are true. One is that the history of case law around abortion is very different here, right? I think that in a way, social conservatives in the U.S. were given a gift you know, in the fact that Roe v. Wade was determined uh, based on the idea of somebody having a right to privacy rather than determined Mm -hmm. by something that's, like, more clearly embedded in constitutional law there, right? So the idea of there being a right to privacy at all, one thing I'm really worried about, I will say, with this leaked opinion in Roe v. Wade is that I do think that if the reasoning, you know, holds that it's offered in this decision, we could see a lot of other case law being overturned. Obergefell v. Hodge was mentioned as a case like that being the one that legalized uh, same-sex marriage nationwide in the U.S. Uh, Lawrence v. Texas, which was the case that overturned criminalization of sodomy in a number of states, which was still legal up until 2003. Those were all also cases that were decided based on this right to privacy Mm -hmm. that's not actually Mm -hmm. written in the American Constitution. My understanding is that it originates from uh, a case, it was Griswold v. Connecticut, I think. It was a case in the 60s 
about uh, whether a married couple should be able to access contraception. And so the decision that was rendered there was basically saying, well, what happens in privacy of a married couple's relations is not really the purview of the state. And so that established the idea of there being a constitutional right to privacy, but it's not written anywhere, right? So to draw the comparison to Canada, like R.V. Morgenthaler, the case in 1988 was decided on the basis of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And that's why previous challenges Mm -hmm. to abortion legislation, I think, were unsuccessful because they were pre-charter and they referenced the Bill of Rights. So the legal foundation, I think, that we have here defending the idea of access to abortion is stronger. I also think that Mm -hmm. our electoral system is less susceptible to capture by evangelicals uh, than the American system is, given that we don't only have two parties, given that our conservative party is, you know, even if it were to become much more socially conservative and were to become an analog of the Republican Party, that's a shift that would take quite a long time to happen. And I don't think that we would be able to see a party like that gain as much of a foothold Mm -hmm. in the system that we have. The thing to be concerned about is, are they going to be able to move conservative parties at the provincial level, Mm -hmm. uh, move the needle towards, you know, restricting access in ways that are within the purview of the provinces that are not a clear violation of the charter, but that make it more difficult for people who need abortion care to access those services. Thankfully, I haven't seen a ton of, I would say, fear mongering based on the American decision. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think we need to be worried that we're going to see anything similar here. Certainly not anytime soon, but... Yeah, I think that Canadians who care about access to abortion care should be vigilant and should be thoughtful about the fact that access to abortion is already not equal across the country. Yeah, I think the media has actually done a pretty good job in the past couple of days. Yeah, go media. <laughs> this show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world. And BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. 
Matea, as you know, on the show, we duly note things. What have you brought to note duly today? So I had to do my due diligence and duly note uh, a weird NBC tweet about me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, well, the tweet was not as weird as the response to the tweet. Mm -hmm. So uh, for those of you who didn't hear, uh, NBC News last week tweeted... uh, about me said this 23-year-old lesbian tutor from Toronto has amassed a total of, uh, at that time, $320,081, the most by a Canadian contestant in Jeopardy history. And boy, did people not like how they referred to me. There were a lot of good jokes about, oh, a lesbian tutor, like she only tutors lesbians? Or, uh, you know, what does she teach? I jokingly said to one reporter, you know, I teach people how to have healthy relationships with their exes because that's my favorite lesbian stereotype. But yeah, people were really upset by this. There were a lot of people that were... Uh, kind of outraged on my behalf that my sexual orientation was being brought into conversation with my win on Jeopardy. Uh, There were people that were calling it outing, which it was not, because I literally have the word lesbian in my Twitter bio. Brett Wilson, formerly of Dragon's Den, had a tweet where he was saying, uh, why are we referring to her by her sexual orientation and not something more important like her nationality? I was like, is it more important? Like, those both seem pretty important to me. Yeah, so I just wanted to duly note, I think it's deeply unfortunate that NBC wrote the tweet that way because it almost seemed perfectly engineered to get Fox News, TMZ, everybody that wants to be upset Mm. about there being more lesbians on television uh, upset about it. And I didn't love the way it was written just on basis of it was clumsy, but I think that me being a, a queer woman on Jeopardy is not just about, you know, me, but it's also about this you know, story of queer and trans contestants that's been going on throughout the season. Mm -hmm. It's about what it means for people that are watching the show. Um, I've received a lot of really positive feedback from younger queer people in Canada, some of whom are not out to their families, Mm -hmm. um, especially people from out east who, you know, feel as though they can't be openly themselves, but have been hearing their family members say positive things about me being very authentically myself on TV. So I think it feels tacky in 2022 to say that representation matters, but it clearly still does. And NBC should write their tweets better to not Mm -hmm. use lesbian as an adjective in that way. That's kind of ambiguous. But if anyone was wondering if I was upset, I wasn't that upset. <laughs> yeah, I often through the Amy Schneider's run and kept wondering if that was at the, the longest a trans person has been on TV in certain markets. Well, I think there's definitely people that don't know any trans people in real life mm-hmm. that watched Amy. And I think that that was a, a huge, huge yeah. watershed moment. Like, I am just, I'm so in awe of the grace that she demonstrated while being a public figure for so long and continuing to be a public figure while, you know, some people had some really terrible things to say about her. It made it easier for me to go on the show, knowing that she had been the trailblazer coming just before. Duly noted. Uh, Jonathan, what's your duly noted for today? So are you familiar with the movie The Room? The Room, like the Tommy Wiseau. The Tommy Wiseau one, Yes. Oh, yes. I'm familiar. So for those who don't know, Tommy Wiseau's 2003 film The Room was a box office flop and received terrible reviews. Entertainment media described the film as a movie that prompts most of its viewers to ask for their money back, before even 30 minutes have passed. A sign on the ticket booth where the film was playing read, No refunds, and contained an excerpt from a review that said, Watching this film is like getting stabbed in the head. Those preceding sentences came from the opening paragraph of an Ontario Superior Court ruling from just over two years ago. It's quite entertaining, and not enough people know about it. The reason we're talking about it now is because the case, or at least the legal saga of it all, is still going on. So about five or six years ago, these three guys, and I I think it's Ottawa, um, completed a documentary about the room called Room Full of Spoons. Weezo sued them, and to quote the most recent judgment, they've all been mired in litigation ever since. 
So that first suit in 2017, uh, Wizzo and his studio sued for breach of copyright, breach of his moral rights under the Copyright Act, misappropriation of personality, passing off, and something called intrusion upon seclusion, which is a kind of invasion of privacy. Remarkably, Wizzo managed to get an injunction granted on an ex parte basis, meaning without representation from the other side with the hearing, and that kept the film from being released. Uh, the injunction remained in effect from June to October 2017 when it was dissolved for a number of reasons, including for, in the court's view, uh, Wizzo having failed to disclose some material facts at the ex parte hearing. For example, quote, although Mr. Wizzo complained in his affidavit that the documentary mocks, derides, and disparages him in the room, he did not disclose that The Room's fame rests on its apparently abysmal quality as a movie. People flock to see The Room because it is so bad. People see the movie for the very purpose of mocking it. Another example, the, the judge took issue with Wiseau citing Greg Sestero's book, The Disaster Artist, to enhance his and The Room's credibility without you know, disclosing its full title, which was The Disaster Artist, My Life Inside The Room, The Greatest Bad Movie Ever Made. In any way, the defendants countersued. The case went to trial, and in April 2020, Wiseau and his company were ordered to pay 550000 U.S. in compensatory damages, plus 200000 Canadian in punitive damages. After that, things actually get quite complicated, but suffice to say that Wiseau eventually tried to take part of it, or an element of this, to the Supreme Court of Canada, which last month declined to weigh in. Then last summer... He sued a second time in Ontario Superior Court, claiming fraudulent misrepresentation and intentional affliction of mental suffering relating to what had happened in the first suit. And a few months later, the court threw that out as an abusive process. Meanwhile, there was another suit, this one in federal court, alleging copyright infringement. A decision on that one came down a couple weeks ago, with the case management judge stating, In its written submissions, the plaintiff, Wizzo Studio, states that it is honestly seeking its day in court. This submission rings hollow. The plaintiff had an eight-day trial, followed by numerous days of motions and appeals. It started a second Ontario proceeding that was determined to be quite clearly an abusive process. The plaintiff should not be able to further vex the defendants with claims that could have been raised years ago. To permit this action to proceed would be an abuse, not only for the defendants, but also for the court. Anyway, now that one is, is being appealed. I mean, a movie about that would be no less interesting than The Disaster Artist. Um, and perhaps it could also contain its own little subtle references to the works of Claire Denis. Yeah. Well, I'm surprised that this has not come across my desk before because I was delighted to hear that apparently this case is moving through the courts. I love reading silly cases on Canley, so I'm definitely going to have to look this up. uh, Duly noted. Years in the making, the end of the blood ban. Health Canada is removing restrictions on men who have sex with men. Our government welcomes this decision. It's been a long time coming. This is a significant milestone in moving forward uh, on both the safety of our blood supply, but also uh, non-discriminatory practices. So here are some headlines that ran in uh, Canadian newspapers last week. In the Toronto Star, discriminatory ban is lifted. In the National Post, blood agency to end ban on gay donors. In the Globe, Health Canada ends ban on blood donations from gay men. Uh, the Canadian press uh, went over the wire. Canadian blood services to end gay blood ban bring in behavior-based screening. Now, what would you take from those, Matea? I would assume that the blood ban had been lifted and that there would not be further restrictions on gay men donating blood. Exactly. Very, very reasonable conclusion. Um, And, you know, while a headline can't, by definition, capture every nuance, uh, you really think that, well, yeah, the issue had been very much solved. And, yay, the liberals, the government, and the blood community blood services all, wow, relegated this to the dustbin of history. And, you know, some activists are thrilled But others are more measured in their enthusiasm, uh, with many arguing that it's been more of a 
reframing of the same thing rather than a fundamental change, sort of shifting the rules from like an explicit ban to more of an implicit one. Yeah, that's what I got out of it once I read Beyond Headlines. Um, So when I initially found out that the blood ban was finally being struck down, I was pretty excited for about 10 minutes until I later saw, you know, some Instagram infographic being shared around by people that I had gone to undergrad with who took sexual diversity studies with me saying, you know, actually, like, they've just said that if you engage in the kind of sex that most gay men engage in, you know, there's still going to be restrictions. Mm -hmm. So I will say I do think that the new regulations are a little bit better in the sense that you can have been sexually active within the past three months, and it's only if you've engaged in anal sex with multiple partners or new partners that there is now, you know, a a ban on you donating blood. So my understanding from what I've read is that if you're, like, a monogamously coupled uh, gay man or I think trans women were also sort of included under the umbrella of this ban before, you know, you would be able to donate blood even if you're sexually active. But if you're somebody who, you know, is in an open relationship, who perhaps perhaps has multiple partners regularly um, or who has, you know, started seeing somebody new, like then you're captured under this new legislation. So from at least the early 90s up till 2013, men who had sex with men even once any time since 1977 were not eligible to donate blood in Canada. In 2013, that changed to men who had not had sex with men in the previous five years. In 2016, that period went down to one year. And in 2019, that went down to three months. Starting in the next few months, That'll change to asking all donors, regardless of gender or sexual orientation, if they've had new or multiple sexual partners in the last three months. If they say yes to either, they'd be asked if they had anal sex with any of these partners. If they have, they'll be required to wait three months from when they last had anal sex to donate. That will be the case in most of Canada, starting this likely this fall. In Quebec, it'll take a little bit longer because they have, for for reasons for historical reasons that are actually probably very interesting, but which I didn't dive into. They have their own parallel blood agency. So anyway, this is better, yeah, but it's but it's always shifting the framework from an explicit ban to an implicit ban. It's been really tricky to find good reporting or good stories that really dive into this in the past week. Yeah, I think Extra, as they often do, mm-hmm. you know, did have some good reporting and, you know, mm-hmm. the article that they released, I think it was like Dale Smith's article. Yeah. That one, I thought, did a good job of explaining how this change is going to affect different groups of people and what is materially different from before. But I think that a lot of the reporting that I saw mm-hmm. was very celebratory and I would say unduly so. What it mm. reminded me of, and I guess reminded is a weird word because it's not like I was around when this happened. Do you remember like three years ago, the federal government started rolling out a bunch of uh, sort of commemorative content about the 50th anniversary of the decriminalization yes. of uh, gay sex, basically. And the thing of it is, is that if you look at scholarships surrounding the decriminalization um in 1969 of gay sex, like what you'll find is that if anything, actually arrests of men having sex with men increased after the decriminalization because what happened was police cracked down on any sort of activity that did not fit within the relatively narrow parameters uh, that were laid out in law, right? So, you know, the Toronto bathhouse raids, Mm -hmm. right? That certainly happened after May 1969. That was a case of men being criminalized for having sex with men. Uh, So the notion that it, you know, was somehow okay to be gay after 1969 Mm -hmm. all of a sudden is like not really grounded in, in historical fact. You know, this pat on the back of aren't we so good that we finally removed the blood ban uh, Mm -hmm. without really delving into specifics about what that looks like and to what extent it's materially different from the existing, uh, you know, policy. I feel like the government does this with, 
gay issues a lot, and I think that the media sometimes just goes along for the ride without really delving into the issues in greater depth. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, liberals are excellent at symbolism. They're excellent at getting the narrative they want. They're excellent at getting the headlines they want. And very few people are equipped to really pick out the nuances and discuss the ways in which, yes, a thing might technically be true, but in all these other ways, there are still laws that criminalize this that are still on the books. Gay Men Sexual Health Alliance, it's had at least the best written thing I saw. It's a long Twitter thread. I believe it also appeared in some form as an Instagram story. Yeah, it's a bit of it. Just beyond the headlines, it looks like there will be very little impact for gay men. Queer community members have been fighting for the repeal of this policy for over 15 years, so it is understandable that people would be excited about this news. While this announcement can be seen as moving in the right direction, the policy change itself is very minor. We can acknowledge the move, but cannot call it a repeal of the gay blood ban. It is merely a modification of the existing policy. After all, technically gay men could have always donated blood if we had never had sex with another man. By calling anal sex a high-risk behavior, Health Canada and blood services are maintaining that a single instance of anal sex, even with the condom use and PrEP use, PrEP being the preventative medication on HIV, carries a greater risk to the blood supply than hundreds of or thousands of instances of vaginal sex in the same period. You know, even if you're a gay person who maybe is just not in circles where these sorts of things are being discussed in depth, I think that it, the news might not trickle down to you until such time that maybe you actually go to donate blood and you get hit with this questionnaire uh, mm -hmm. that's basically asking, uh, as it was put in a TikTok, I saw a TikTok from uh, Eve Parker Finley the other day, where she was joking, you know, now they're not asking, you know, have you had sex with men or are you gay? It's like, do you do butt stuff is now basically the questionnaire yeah. uh, that's being asked, right? Um, when was your last relationship? Define um, relationship. Okay, so long time. Um, any butt stuff? What? Yeah, any butt stuff? I thought these questions weren't in here anymore. No, the old question was, are you gay? Now it's, do you do any butt stuff? This still feels a little icky to me. Um, you know, maybe you're not going to find out until you actually go and try and donate blood and come up against this policy. So I think it's like a big failure of communications uh, and I can see why the liberals might want for there to be that failure mm. of communications, because if people don't understand that it's actually a relatively small step forward, uh, it looks a lot better for them. My problem with this is, like, as you mentioned, I just am not really buying um, the logic that's being put forward by CBS of, well, you know, it doesn't really matter if somebody used a condom or not because people's recall is not that good of whether or not they used mm -hmm. one or, well, what if there is improper use? And the thing is, is that they're not even asking people who are engaging in vaginal or oral sex whether mm -hmm. they're using protection or what they're doing. But even if they were, right, like we accept that there's improper use there and that's a risk that we deem to be acceptable. So I understand that there is higher risk of HIV transmission with anal sex. Mm -hmm. But given the fact that the blood is being tested and given the fact mm -hmm. that there is you know, some amount of risk that we accept whenever we're accepting donations into the blood supply. To me, it seems as though keeping this restriction is really just a vestige of, I think, homophobia and uh, specifically, like, HIV-related yeah. stigma towards gay men. Yeah, they test all blood for HIV. There's also always a possibility that some could get through because there's a short window in which it's not detectable. They estimate that this change would increase the risk from one per 25.9 million donations to one per 20.7 million donations, a difference which they describe as being in reality not meaningful or significant. The, the fractions we're talking about are so 
wildly small. I see a couple of problems uh, with, you know, the the new rules that are going to come into force. One is that I think just the questions that are going to be asked are, if anything, like perhaps more invasive than the ones before. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, given that they're asking about very specific sex acts and they're going to be asking that not just to gay men, but they're going to be expanding who they ask those questions to, to a number of different people. And given that Canadian Blood Services already has such difficulty getting enough people to donate blood uh, so that they have the supply that they need in order to serve Canadians, like, I don't know that asking more invasive questions that are possibly going to dissuade people from donating blood just because it's uncomfortable and, like, I'm not sure how employees are going to be trained on, like, how to ask these things sensitively. I just don't see any real evidence that I've heard that it, you know, that's the Mm -hmm. threshold past which we can't liberalize things any further when it comes to blood donation. Yeah, I mean, we have, I mean, there's a slight bit of insight of how this yet, thanks to Justin Ling, who wrote a thing for Vice, but a year and a half ago, got some stuff for Freedom Information. It largely confirms what we kind of suspected, but basically, at the time, they were worried that switching to gender-neutral behavior-based screening, as they have, would result in an excessive loss of currently donating safe donors if all donors are subject to the same set of questions and criteria. Uh, he also found that they had caught... Uh, 24 cases of HIV-positive blood, that, and they, they found those that had been screened out, and then they followed up to try to figure out where their screening at earlier stages had failed. Of the 11 who responded, one was HIV-positive and clearly ineligible. One donor had a single same-sex encounter, which he'd forgotten, may not have been the source of his contract with the virus, and another donor had an HIV-positive partner. Five of those HIV-positive donors, however, did not acknowledge any risk, while three heterosexual donors reported multiple sexual partners but were not ineligible to donate. They didn't do a good job screening for uh, hepatitis C or HIV in the mid-80s. They brought in testing too late, and a lot of people who received blood transfusions, uh, many of whom were hemophiliacs, or maybe a large portion of hemophiliacs, uh, contracted HIV and AIDS and Hep C. And so a lot of the policies we've seen since have sort of come out of that in a fear of like, you know, basically erring, very much erring on the side of caution, which I guess also kind of makes sense when you're talking about blood transfusions. Yeah, I guess how to manage that. And so with hence coming up with this blanket ban that's gradually been whittled away and now still has these strange, what I guess now is a vestige mm-hmm. of that, which is still problematic, even if it's no longer explicitly discriminatory. I think that a lot of the conversations that we see around uh, the blood ban are rooted in this visceral fear that people still have of the concept of HIV. You know, as you brought up a few minutes ago about the liberals celebrating the 50th anniversary of the supposed or ostensible decriminalization of homosexuality. And I mean, maybe that's what the liberals have been doing for a very long time, is they've been taking sort of these key symbolic steps that are not meaningless by any means. I mean, they they, they have... They do have some weight, but that certainly allows them to avoid tackling the a lot of thornier, trickier problems that maybe don't always have a straightforward solution, but certainly don't always have a as politically easy solution. Mm-hmm. And it allows them to avoid talking about the ways in which homosexuality and queerness remains criminalized and people who engage in certain sexual behaviors remain subject to the laws in ways that other types of 
sexual behaviors that are otherwise legal uh, and consenting sexual behaviors don't. It's been a very proud tradition, I think, of the liberal government to make these sort of small advances, whether it comes to women's rights, whether it comes to uh, expansion of rights for queer and trans people, and to celebrate those small advances while perhaps ignoring, as you said, those thornier issues and glossing over the ways in which those rights are still really limited. It's hard to make a heritage moment out of a half measure, but they kind of... They've kind of succeeded. They try really hard. They've been working really hard at it. (laughs) So that is Shortcuts for this week. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me, Matea. Thank you so much for having me. It was nice to get to talk about something that was not me being on television. (laughs) We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. You can email Jesse, the usual host of the show, at jesse at CanadaLand.com. Or if you really like, you can email me at Jonathan at CanadaLand.com. You can find me on Twitter at Goldsby. Or you can also listen to me on the Wag the Doug podcast, which is our Ontario politics podcast I co-host with Alvin Smith. We're going weekly for the duration of the Ontario election, with our first of these weekly episodes coming out on Friday. Matea, where can people find you? People can find me on Yes TV tonight at, I believe, 7.30 p.m. Eastern. They can also find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. That's M-A-T-T-E-A-R-O-A-C-H if you want to read updates about my time on Jeopardy and occasional other stuff from me. This episode is produced by Aviva Lazard with additional production by Tristan Capacchione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn and our theme music is by SoCalled. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to candleland.com join. 